this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. And Jay, the yes. union spoke. This is their selected episode. It goes back, Jay. Uh, to a post last uh, last month, maybe what was it? March. I'm trying to remember what the months are. Uh, where I said, "Hey, we're going to do a genre episode," mm-hmm. and threw out a couple city. All right, not genre episode. I threw out a couple of options for genres. Uh, or let me backtrack. Topics, and one of them was genre, and Manchester ended up being the one that was selected for. The genre. Now I got some pushback because is, is Manchester or Madchester, is that a genre of music or is that a music scene? Exactly. Is it both? So that's what we're here to understand. Now we're just a couple of, of, of country boys from America. We don't know much about <laughs> music from the UK. Just a couple good old boys. Just a couple good old harm. No, exactly, Jay. Uh, just running from the law. A moonshine since, since the day we were born. Yes, and um, so it'd be pretty presumptuous, uh, presumptuous of us to sit here for an hour and talk about what Manchester was and Madchester. So we invited uh, folks who maybe might know stuff, and uh, one of them, one of our patrons, took us up on it, welcoming him all the way from Yorkshire, Paul Richardson. Welcome, Paul. Hello. Hi, how you're you gonna doing? have to do. You're gonna have to carry the weight of the entire UK on your shoulders for this episode. I'm, I'm you, sorry to tell you. You really are gonna need to lay into that accent more. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. Un, I'm not unaccustomed to having huge expectations that I completely fail to meet. So yeah, <laughs> it's familiar territory for me. We're glad e- to help. Excellent. So, from our perspective, over here. Madchester is like in between the sort of 80s alternative of the early years and then like Britpop. When looking at the UK, that's that's our perspective here. Um, are we miss? Is that just a gross general, you know, uh, generalization of what it was? Or can you give us sort of like a broad view of like what? What is Manchester to people in the UK? Is it a scene? Is it a is it a sound? What are okay. your thoughts? Yeah. So, um, on behalf of the people of the UK, um, <laughs> our, our view is that um, Manchester is, is a specific sound that kind of came out of Manchester in the in the late eighties, early nineties, um, typified by like bands like the Stone Roses or the Happy Mondays um, and in Spiral Carpets and that kind of slightly psychedelic influenced uh, kind of indie rock kind of band, I guess. Um, okay. With and, and then with you know uh, elements of like um, organ and uh, very drug influenced as well. 
um, as opposed to like the Manchester music scene, which uh, obviously has got a longer history, but the, you know, bands like New Order, who are uh, from Manchester, uh, right. wouldn't necessarily fit into the Madchester um, kind of sound because it's, it kind of sits out with um, that from a audio perspective, I guess. What in terms of Manchester, the city? I've heard it described as, as sort of a working class industrial city. Is that accurate? Yeah, and c- certainly, um, crumbs. Thirty years ago, um, it, it was still that. Uh, nowadays, it, it's a lot more professionals, kind of um, mm-hmm. people who sit at computers for a living, as opposed to people who work in factories for a living. Um, but in the late eighties and early nineties, it was still a lot of that. So I, I guess I would compare that. If you're looking at a, an American city, that would probably be like a Midwestern city, like a Detroit, a Cleveland. Um, do you know the like a rough estimate on the size of Manchester? Is it a large city, or is, is it, like a less than a million people? It, it, it's a it's a weird one in the same way as I'm, I'm going to compare it to like Boston, which Boston city itself is is fairly small, but there are so many conurbations around it that right. fit within that border area that is actually a really big population but that technically don't live in it if that makes sense so manchester's yeah. the same so like the city of manchester is fairly small but there are so many other towns and cities immediately next to it that it has you know a population of you know four or five million in that area alone gotcha. um, that's actually a really but, good comparison yeah. on boston yeah maybe like boston too and that Boston has a huge influence on American culture and is perceived as being bigger than it is. But when you actually look at population, it's not that significant compared to say like Columbus, which is probably more people, but doesn't have as near the cultural influence. It's probably denser population wise in Boston than it is in a city like Columbus, which is more spread out because there's no ocean to sort of hem it in on any particular side. Um, so yeah, you mentioned so Manchester as a city has a, a music scene going back a ways, and in the eighties, you know the bands that people would know would be like the Smiths and New Order, uh, the Fall, which we've covered in some way those bands on this podcast, um, all out of the post punk scene of the of the end of the seventies, early eighties. Um, it seemed like, and I, I did watch 24 hour party people a long time ago, but it seemed like factory records has a huge importance in this whole discussion because of the fact that like they started out, you know, making records for a specific band and then the Hacienda opens. And I remember in the movie, like it's not necessarily successful to begin with. And then once they started bringing in DJs uh, towards the later end of the 80s and uh, MDMA became a thing in the in the culture in the in the scene which is a a drug uh, people have probably uh, heard of it it's also uh, goes by the name ecstasy or e or molly um, that became like the thing that sort of cauterized the whole or, or unified the whole scene was these DJs at this club, there's this new drug that's making everybody very happy when they're dancing. And you got bands like um, the Stone Roses, which we've covered, um, Happy Mondays, which we haven't covered, but we covered the, the next band, which was Black Grape. 
who are dance-influenced bands, which is something that was really, I think, unique. Um, I don't think that in the United States we've had anything quite the same in the way that those bands have evolved. Um, it always seemed like there was a defining line between like rock bands and yeah. bands that made dance music. The closest I could come to was, I guess, what we would call here maybe jam bands or like Grateful Dead inspired bands where there's like a dancey drug element. Right. Musically, it's very different, but like maybe culturally and some of the aspects around the music and like how you listen to it and sort of the community around it have some similarities. Would you agree with that? I think so. Yeah. Paul, are you familiar with like, what's your history with, um, with Manchester? Did you grow up listening to those bands while they were happening or did you come to them later? Um, I, I think it, it, from the, when the scene was particularly at its peak, I was a tiny bit too young. Um, so it was like people a couple of years older than me would be sporting bulk, bowls, cut haircuts, um, and wearing exceptionally baggy um, jeans and so on. The baggies. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, probably smelt a, a lot like weed. Um, but <laughs> I, I would have been 13 at the time and therefore, therefore uh, you know, a few months away from, from picking up weed. Um, so the, uh, uh, but I think, yeah, that, that kind of uh, thing was slightly outside my knowledge until a couple of years after uh, it had peaked really but um my elder sister uh, from whom i've inherited some records um was was more into it than i was um and kind of identified with it a bit more and I, but i think one, one of the things that's worth mentioning is that the mad chester scene as a sound also brought in bands from elsewhere um rather than specifically from manchester itself so there are bands from london or liverpool who kind of fit into the Manchester sound, but, um, you know, aren't specifically from that area of the Northwest. Okay. So the psychedelic aspect to me is interesting because when we look at American music and when like the psychedelic music came in, in the late sixties, a lot of that was tied to like the anti-war movement and anti-Nixon sentiment. And when I look at the UK in the eighties, you're looking at like Thatcherism and I'm wondering if there was sort of like the same sort of anti-government escapism that was happening with regards to this club culture that was readily taking, uh, you know, drugs and the bands were sort of reacting off of that and creating very psychedelic and trippy music to go along with that. And I'm what I, I only know a very, you know, broad strokes idea of what was happening politically in the UK in the 80s based on what was happening in the US with Reagan and sort of Reagan yeah. and Thatcher were sort of, you know, bedfellows. Um, was the, what was sort of the climate, I guess, of that era? Was is there is there a connection between like that with the with the 60s psychedelic America and maybe late 80s uh Manchester scene? Yeah, I think so. And, and Manchester and a lot of areas of the north of England that um more broadly were quite working class areas where a lot of factories were being closed very similar to what was happening in detroit say at the time or or elsewhere in that area um and obviously that well that's where some of the um the dance music originated that kind of then was picked up in the northwest and, and filtered through into the manchester sound um 
but yeah, there, there was a, a lot of uh, you know unemployed people, people looking for opportunities for escapism, and this very happy movement, um, which for which the the smiley face logo was used quite a lot um, around Manchester things. Then that mm. that, that um, yeah, that that kind of uh, does mirror yeah what what you mentioned there. Interesting. Um, so some of the bands that we've talked about are, you know, Stone Roses. James came out of this scene, which is a band that we've covered. Um, Charlatans, who were uh, in a recent poll but didn't win. Uh, but I think, uh, I think probably one of the bands that, after the big Britpop, Britpop bands, is like a band that people know in the U.S. that are into British music. Um, one that I didn't recognize, um, I heard the name, but I wasn't really sure, is a band called Inspiral Carpets, which is, I think when you mentioned Organ, um, yeah. th- that was the band that like gets rep- uh, referenced. They were actually the band that um, I learned, uh, Noel Gallagher was their guitar tech when he was growing up and then ended up forming Oasis after that. Um, do you have have you listened to much in Spiral Carpets? Yeah, I, I think that the for me, I was really uh, really loved in Spiral Carpets and Stone Roses that kind of uh, side of it. But yeah, that the, the organs in the in Spiral Carpets are, are quite magical at times and um, a, a nice bit of escapism. me who listened to, to kind of around that time lots of Bon Jovi lots of Paula Abdul um and um you know uh, similar things then I wasn't familiar with hearing an organ in yeah. music played in music I was kind of familiar with it from a isn't that something that old people dance to um, <laughs> or, or that you'd see or that you'd see at a tourist destination on the seaside so it was really interesting to kind of have it included in pop music um I wonder if it's, and I was struck by that too, as um, I was listening to them and, and just starting to wonder, like, how did they stumble on this, on organs? Because the, uh, at least, you know, at the time, it didn't seem like they were easy to come by and they can be cumbersome instruments and then like be inspired by the sound in the late 80s to put it in your music. But then I'm thinking too, that maybe that's why they, got to organs like in the in the US like guitars from the 60s and 70s became popular in the 90s because they were cheap like you could go nobody wanted them in the in the 80s as well so a lot of people who started playing guitar like myself play learned on like 60s and 70s style guitars uh i'm wondering if that was another thing where you know thrift stores or whatever or music stores were full, yeah. full of cheap <laughs> organs 
I, I mean, I, I just assumed that they'd gone through all of the different sound effects on, on their Casio <laughs> keyboard <laughs> until, until they finally heard one that didn't sound particularly familiar or, right. or, or alternatively sounded quite, you know, sounded quite like the type of thing they might have been familiar with as kids. Um, yeah. But you know, you, you go you go through the noises that sound a bit like Duran Duran or Kraftwerk, and and eventually you, you'll hit the the Hammond organ setting, mm-hmm. um, or on a synth or a keyboard. So I, I just assumed it was kind of something more like that rather than using necessarily vintage uh, organs. Yeah. Well, and you can't. I mean, you know, organs were a big in '60s psychedelia in terms of like the doors and. Questions in the Mysterians using a Farfisa, and that that was always present in little ways here and there. The animals, I mean, that was all the way up into seventies, you know, classic rock with Deep Deep Purple and bands like that. But in the eighties, it was not a sound you heard. Oh no, it was gone. (laughs) To Paul's point, it was yeah. New Order was much more in line with what you would hear from keyboard sounds. Oh yeah, than than definitely. So I want to go back a little bit to the um, the offhanded comment about the baggy term. Uh, can you explain that to a couple of um, fashion deficient Americans so we understand what what is if somebody calls you baggy, what are you wearing? Um, I, I guess it, it's very bell bottomy style jeans um, and ha- having a, a kind of. Do you even have a bowl cut haircut? Is that is that a thing that you understand? Oh, yeah, we know what that is. Yeah, yeah okay, cool. So, it's, yeah, yeah, like the monkeys or, you know, that early Beatles kind of very, but but quite thick with it as well. So not just flat, quite thick. Um, and, and it was just, it was, yeah, quite wedgy, I guess. Um, and that that's just kind of, it looked perfectly normal to me because that's what, you know, older kids were sporting at the time. But I, I think it's it's different from some of the other, movements around that time there were still uh where i grew up still a few punks hanging around who had mohawks and leather and studs and things um and there were a few goths around and then there was a uh, kind of the more popular um yeah very uh very baggy clothes kind of style and and greebers as well who i don't know if you come across greebers they're more kind of ned's atomic dustbin type fans people who wear baggy woolly jumpers with holes in um and ripped ripped baggy clothes as opposed to new fairly neat baggy clothes which was more of a a, a baggies thing if that ah, makes okay wow. i had no it, idea there was a difference yeah and greebos would, would be more likely to have like matted hair or you know white guy with dreads which is always a great look <laughs> where does the uh like the tracksuit athletic wear stuff come in because that was also unusual to an American eyes to see rock bands wearing that type of stuff. Yeah. I think, I think Manchester did did wear quite a lot of like Adidas tracksuit type things, maybe Kappa as well. I don't know if Kappa's um, a thing over there. Um, And yeah, just, just lots of relatively cheap, fairly working class um, clothes, clothes that um, were fairly resilient unless it's too close to a lighter. Um, And, uh, you know, it was it it was the style of the time, as they say. I did do a little research on this because one of the things I remembered about I watched a documentary on the Sex Pistols and how important Malcolm McLaren's shop was to the punk scene that was sort of burgeoning and how, you know, 
American punk bands would even go there when they were traveling to the UK. And I don't, I'm going to, there's this, this is in Wikipedia. It says that, um, Alongside the music, a way of dressing emerged that gave Baggy its name. Baggy jeans often flared, with the pants usually being made by Shami Ahmed's Joe Boggs brand, alongside brightly colored or tie-dye casual tops. Have you heard of this Joe Bloggs brand? I'd forgotten about Joe Bloggs, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> they, 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 they were, uh, I mean, they, they died out by the mid-90s, definitely. Right. But yeah, yeah, yeah they were very of the time, or... Um, where I grew up in the northeast of England, we had Geordie Jeans, um, which was a similar kind of hyper local, um, you know, manufacturing concern, um, but that was picked up by you know a similar group of people. But obviously, the the Joe Blogs was the very fashionable version, and yeah, like thirty two inch bell bottom kind of style. Nice. It also says that. Um... Uh, it's they call them fishing hats uh that it was stone Ro- roses drummer um rennie wren alan rennie wren that got sort of accredited with uh with starting that but i i guess that we look at those as like the 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 kangol hats that would like you know liam gallagher would wear in the in the 90s um and it was it was just a part of an overall sort of hippie-ish part rave part retro hippie-ish um culture but this is you know what's interesting is this is also tied to um like casual football attire right like in terms of american bands there's not a lot of like crossover with sports in 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 the indie alternative world right whereas i think that that's okay in the uk like you can still be a huge football fan and be a and be a musician Whereas you don't ever see, you know, it's very rare to see yeah. any indie musician here you talking s- about sports. It seems like in the late 90s, you start to see like some new metal bands do that. Now you've got like some country artists that associate themselves with sports. But yeah, in the 80s and early 90s and mid 90s, it was not. Those two worlds did not cross over. <laughs> no. It, in the and, and it, I imagine if it did, it was it was more likely to be baseball as well. I know like the, uh, I forget the guy's name, the guy from Wilco's like big into baseball and and so mm-hmm. on and yeah. that's more accepted as being a, a sport that you're allowed to be interested in it because mm-hmm. it's more intellectual isn't right. it right right uh, <laughs> but when you theory. get older yeah. you're allowed yeah, yeah. to do that when you get older once you're established like eddie vetter is a huge cubs fan right and that's okay once you're established but you couldn't really expose that because there was such a jocks versus nerds and musicians were considered nerds mm. That it was, I mean, that was ingrained in culture for a long time. So it was just a weird, um, yeah, a, a and weird that, cultural think, difference. I think that that bucket hat was was definitely, a, a, as I would call it, um, kind of a, a big thing of the time, and it, it definitely transferred across to the football terraces and and so on. But I, I think the my first moment of kind of really seeing bands identify with football was Oasis and their love of Manchester City, and, and that they seem to be the first people to certainly from my recollection um you know really uh outwardly talk about their, their interest in football whereas you know other bands of the time you know it w- wasn't a thing i couldn't tell you what members of blur are interested in from a football perspective right no i just know the one guy likes to make cheese yeah alex james <laughs> likes to make cheese um d- d- Dave Rantree, who's the drummer, is a 
uh, a like a councilman type equivalent in in uh, where he lives um, for the Labour Party, uh, and then the other two do whatever the other two do. I think they concentrate on music, right? <laughs> Well, as a as a fellow bass player, I appreciate Alex James's interest in cheese because I'm also interested in cheese. <laughs> I share your passion for cheese. <laughs> I think what was interesting in looking back at this sort of scene is like how much of the original late '80s scene was driven by independent labels. There was basically no major label interest in any of these bands. And Stone Roses and Happy Mondays and and in Spiral Carpets and all these bands were all and James were all happening because of like factory records and small indie labels that were taking chance on them. That until I think who was the first one? I think James was like the first one to actually get signed to any sort of a recognizable label, which was Fontana, which is purely a UK label. It has almost no. I mean, I think their stuff gets released here via like agreements with like Sony and, you know, bigger labels. Um, and they released like Catherine wheel stuff from what I remember in the, in the early years, but this was a very indie label driven movement that I think makes sense when you recognize that it was so connected to the dance scene and dance music is often unappreciated right. by major labels and is always looked over and as just a, you know, you get a, Maybe you get a 12 inch out of somebody, but it's hard to market dance music. Well, in hindsight, looking, looking at these artists and what songs are considered Mad Chester, the ones that we got first were like EMF and the Soup Dragons and Jesus Jones, who are, mm -hmm. you, they're copying the sound or inspired by the sound or they share the sound, but they're not from Manchester. There it is. And they were pushed here. They got heavy. Um, have you play at least for a couple singles between the 88 and 91. Um, but they are not the, I guess what you would consider the, you know, sort of the quintessential bands. It's interesting which ones got picked up and pushed and marketed to America. Do what I want It is, and and it's a. I, I'm glad you held up that um, record, Paul, and I'm glad that Jay you mentioned that because I have a playlist on Spotify called Tim's 1991 Fiero Jams, because <laughs> a a coworker that I, yeah. I worked with in high school at a at a grocery store drove a Pontiac Fiero, one of the one of the greatest cars ever made, and uh, he had cassette singles and we would go to lunch when we were working in the summer because you know obviously during school year we weren't there all day but during the summer we would work like eight hour shifts and he would throw singles into his fiero 
And we would listen to the KLF and Soup Dragons, I'm Free, and Jesus Jones, and EMF. And that's when, like, Mysterious Ways by U2 happened around 1991. And you had Big Audio Dynamite with The Globe. And there was, and that was in terms of pop music, that was happening at the same time as I was hearing, like, Summertime by DJ Jazzy Jeff and Too Legit to Quit by MC Hammer. Like that sort of pop hip hop was happening at the exact same time as this like danceable UK music was happening. And it was a really interesting and weird time to be listening to pop music in the US because it wasn't solely Mariah Carey and Boys to Men and, and that stuff. You were getting like pop hip hop and stuff from the UK that was like completely unheard yeah, of. Da- danceable rock music, which at the time felt like where we were headed. I remember yeah. thinking, well, this is getting pushed hard. Like it's all over. It's new. It's different. It's yeah. It has technology integrated. It just felt like, oh, this is where music is headed. And they're mm-hmm. uh, very early nineties as well. But whatever happened to the guy who used to rap alongside DJ Jazzy Jeff? I don't know. If he's been up to much of late, you mean the uh, DJ? You, you, you mentioned uh, summertime there. <laughs> oh, that guy. I don't know. Whatever happened to that guy? Yeah, it's weird. We'll have to, <laughs> Sorry. Have to do a Google search on him. But but I think it, it is interesting actually because I've got a copy of the the Super Dragons album Love God, um, and the, the the album version of I'm Free. I can't remember about the single version has a features a rapper on it, which yeah. um, again isn't something that. I'd particularly experienced before so from an indie perspective featuring a, featuring a rapper. I'd, I'd come across uh, Aerosmith and Run DMC and Anthrax with um, whoever it was with uh, Public Enemy, um, and, and, but not an indie band. That, that's a whole different world, isn't it? Well, let's not forget R.E.M. With, on Green did Pop Song 89 and KRS-One is on that's that true. song. Like that had been happening very... Sparingly, in terms of like hip hop, um, uh, Chuck D from Public Enemy appears on a, a Sonic Youth song in either late '80s, or early '90s. Cool thing. Wow. Um, so that that had been happening, but it was yeah. like very, very. It was a novelty. Yeah, it was a novelty. It was almost very sparing. Something you you could you could do, and it would get you a little attention too. You want to get some buzz around a song. In terms of time frame, though, Soup Dragons are, and and these bands are sort of like, I guess you'd call them the second wave, right? Like, in terms of the original bands, sort of 88, 89, putting out their records, and then these are sort of like the the younger bands, the, um, the Bushes to your Nirvanas, I guess you'd say. Yeah. In some respect. Because uh, it did. I mean, there were definitely bands that, although the Soup Dragons aren't from Manchester, right? They're from uh, no. different area. But like Ocean Color Scene was a band that seemed to fit in to that sound, but just came a couple years later. And um, who are some of the other ones that uh, Ocean Color Scene? Very much a chameleon of of indie music um, when they kind of resurfaced again mid to late 90s they suddenly sounded a lot like oasis um which is a a slightly cynical approach to uh, making music (laughs) um yes and 
though there was, I guess, a, a I don't want to say a decline, but you know, Stone Roses famously had a whole bunch of troubles after the first record. It took them a long time to get the second record out. It was kind of a disappointment. Um, In Spiral Carpets never blew up in the same way that like any other like Oasis did or anything like that. And I think from an outside perspective, it took the Britpop scene to explode for people like in the US to really understand like what was going on with the Manchester scene. How does Primal Scream fit into all of this? Um, Because they seem like they're influenced by that sound, but they're not from Manchester, right? No, I think they're Glaswegian, or certainly the the singer's Glaswegian. I, I'm not sure where they were, they were based when they were uh, released Screamadelica and um, the one with the funny painting of the sun on it. Um, but yeah, they, they they definitely appropriated part of that sound, um, and then but then progressed in a very different direction for a while before starting to do uh, Rolling Stones covers for the rest of their career. <laughs> well. It, that points out there seems to be a tension here with this larger group of bands of like how rock or how dance to be. Mm. Some are like walking that line in between and then others are like much further towards the dance side or even electronic side. Like listen to some of 808 State, which is mentioned as one of the formative bands here. And that's very digital and dance oriented. And then you've got things like Britpop emerging, which maybe is some of those bands pushing more towards guitar rock orientation, which Primal Screams, you know, breaks through here. Yeah. Basically and, sounding uh, like the Rolling Stones. Yeah. But Pr- Primal Scream uh, kind of yeah, moved through that period. And uh, Blur, I think, were one of the only, one of the fewer bands that moved from that Manchester baggy sound through into, uh, into Britpop as well. Um, yeah. Yep. I'm going to say a name because uh this song was voted um uh, by someone <laughs> in 2005 to be the best song from the Madchester scene. It's called Voodoo Ray by a guy named Gerald. Okay, yeah. Do you know what have you heard that? Yeah, I can't. I can't bring it to mind. A guy, a guy named Gerald very much continued down the the dance kind of route, um, but I, I do get him confused with the v- remarkably similarly named a man named Adam or a man called Adam. Um, like, like they've gone out of their way to confuse everyone. Um, but yeah, that that's quite a very much more dance oriented 
um, rather than indie oriented, gotcha. uh, guitar oriented uh, bit of music. Is the is the Manchester scene a part of the rave scene, or is it like the birth of the rave scene? Because the rave scene seems to go completely towards electronic music, whereas Manchester seems to be like it's in between. It's it's got rock bands, but they're danceable rock bands, but it also has electronic music. But it seems like the rave scene evolves out of this, at least in the UK, and then maybe that transfers. I don't know when the rave scene hit, if in terms of connection in the United States, if that has a connection to house music of Detroit, you know, going back into the eighties and whatnot in Chicago, industrial. Um but it seems like there is a a natural progression to like 808 state going to be yeah. completely 100% digital in the clubs. Um, and then of course you have out of Manchester shortly after this, you have the chemical brothers coming out and then um, sub sub, which was the band that would become the dubs. So you have oh, wow. these electronic rock bands coming out of Manchester. Yeah. Um, also the verb were a Manchester band. And um it's it's interesting how you know along with oasis those bands all moved within each other's own spaces like it doesn't seem odd and it didn't seem odd at the time that like no gallagher sang on several chemical brothers songs like that just seemed normal whereas yeah. that would not have been normal 10 years earlier for a major rock band to guest on an uh, yeah. a sample based you know, electronica artist. Yeah. Well, it's like the, uh, the, the marketing or the business side of things wants to push you in, into um, nice, nice to find genres. So I'm sure there's influence and pressure to like become more rock, become more dance, become more rock and uh, not be in the middle, which is hard to put a label on and sell. I, I think to, to me that there's uh, the kind of Manchester scene was that, time when the the kind of guitar based bands and um electronic bands kind of came together for a period of time and then yeah. separated again and then yeah you, you've got your uh noel gallagher's who, who continued to cross over and then um damon alban from blur continuing right. to cross over as oh, well with yeah. like the, the gorillas um and so on as well yeah it's almost like then you figure once you establish yourself, then it's like, well, I still want to make this music. You just do it through another identity, yeah. which makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And it didn't gorillas have, um, doesn't Sean Ryder like sing on a gorilla single? Is it Dare? Yeah, yeah. bringing it in the Happy Mondays. Yeah, to, the, uh, the, the, the story behind that that I seem to recall is that the, the song was meant to be called It's There, um, but because he's, he's, um, struggles with his pronunciation and uh, clarity um <laughs> it, it just came out as it's dare um and they just you know went with it as that because <laughs> <laughs> uh, got... <laughs> from a, a lyrical perspective it's there makes more sense than it's dare right but from a it's a dance song and it doesn't need to make sense <laughs> uh, yeah well yeah, yeah. It, it's actually pretty it's pretty great it is funny uh or not funny, but in reading back to sort of what did in the scene, part of it was Sean Ryder's massive uh, drug intake and basically destroying Fox or Factory Records because when they were making their follow-up album to their debut, they went down to like 
the Caribbean and just kept buying drugs with all their recording oh, money. Boy. And then yeah. they would say to factory records, hey, we need a few more dollars to finish up the record. And then they would spend it on drugs and they'd be like, well, we need a few more dollars. And Tony Wilson is just handing over money. And he's like, guys, I need the record. And they're like, we don't have a record. And he's like, well, the, the label's done now. You basically used all the money we had and we have no record. And it's over. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anyone who's seen uh, 24 hour party people will, you know, have, have got an understanding of uh, Tony Wilson's um, business acumen. Um, right. So I, I'm not sure that, that, the Inspiral Carpets were entirely to blame. I think, you know, spending £15,000 on a suspended table hanging from the ceiling or, or whatever it was probably to, sure. doesn't help. Yeah, Pro- yeah. Profligate, profligacy across the board um, doesn't make for a sustainable business, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I, one of the things that um, occurred to me earlier that I, uh, just going back to was um, Stone Roses, that they... Um, what their first record was through an independent label. I think it was Silver Turn off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then part of the delay in between was them uh, trying to get out of their contract with Silver Turn um, and doing things like invading the offices and throwing paint around. Um, and uh, then eventually signing to Geffen, uh, uh, with, who released their second album, certainly in the UK. Um, and so that they were one of the bands that did cross... Uh, to the like a major label yeah they uh i mean that's a perfect example of a band that just like had it all and squandered it yeah over you know a period of time also fairly big uh fans of narcotics i understand yes (laughs) i don't i'm not sure that any band was uh was doing a a hardcore uh straight edge uh thing in in the Manchester scene. I don't think that that happened. I could, I I, I could also see it. Like if that is the origin or if you form a band to play party music and then you suddenly become really start to become really successful and you have to make a second record. (laughs) I could see that being a a lot of pressure and maybe self-sabotaging just the hypothesis there of like, we just meant to put to something together to have fun and have people dance to. And now there's mm-hmm. all this pressure to make money and create art that we don't necessarily want to do. I'm sure that's an element too. Yeah. So we've only touched the surface with what there is with regards to Madchester, obviously. Um, but if you're going to pick a record, by a, by a Manchester band to explain to your less musically uh, inclined friends, uh, well, this 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 would be a good idea. There this would be a good representation of what Manchester sounds like. Paul, do you have a pick of what records you would choose? Um, <clears throat> this is the kind of thing that people think about in advance, isn't it? Um, or I throw them at you anyway. Yeah. Yeah, all that. Um, I, I think to me, um, certainly the band that I go back to the most is actually the Stone Roses. I don't self-identify as a Stone Roses fan because I, I don't own any tracksuits or bucket hats. Um, and um, I have five tracksuits. <laughs> you have been um, buying tracksuits. I have. This is the year of tracksuits for me. 2022. How many of them are law? I'm, speci- oh. I'm, I'm specifically going for uh, the... The uh, very fine-looking tracksuit that uh, Colin Farrell sported in *The Gentleman*, which is like a—it's—it's a—it's actually like a patterned tracksuit to look oh, like wow. 
a very nice suit, but it's tracksuit <laughs> material. But it's his, okay. But it's spandex. Yes. <laughs> it's 95% flammable. Gotcha. So, yeah, no, to me, I, I think, yeah, I, I definitely listen to the Stone Roses more than any of the other Mad- Manchester bands. Um, I'll, I'll go back and, and listen to some of the the uh, slightly more obscure ones also, like uh, the Boo Radleys, who are named after, um, uh, I don't know why I started that sentence. A character, a character in, from To um, Kill a Mockingbird. That's, yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, and and you know I, I I still like them and uh, a few of the more obscure, um, but yeah, I, I think Stone Roses is, is the most recognizable of those. Jay, when you were going through the music, was there any particular album or or song or band that you were like this? This to me is what it what I think of when I think of Manchester. Yeah, two came to mind. Um, I agree on Stone Roses. I would say maybe Fool's Gold off the first record is maybe if I pick the track and put it in a time capsule, maybe that's the one I pick. I could also see the argument of picking something like I'm free from um, the soup dragons, because from a formula standpoint, it checks the box. Like it is a stone song with a dance and almost, I guess, reggae feel over top. So it's almost, you know, if you were to go in a, um, a factory and build a, a song that checks all the boxes that might be uh, another way to take it to explain like, Hey, this is what the sound is. So I, I could go in either of those two directions, either starting from so- the source or sort of the, ma- the, the more manufactured version. I'm going to go with a curveball here. Um, I've been a fan of James for a long time and I went back and looked at discography and I realized that um, gold mother came out in 1990 um, Come Home was the lead single, which is one of my favorite James songs. And then they re-release when they did the American release for the album, they added Sit Down to that album, and that's what I'm basing it on is uh, is that version, not the original UK version of Cheating. But uh, those are two great songs. and and up beyond uh james is much better than some of the earlier 80s stuff and i just i've always found them to be a fascinating band and and tim booth to be a really interesting dude i love his solo record with angelo baldamenti from uh the 90s booth and the bad angel uh angelo baldamenti did the soundtrack for or the score for twin peaks he's a composer um but that's a good record if you haven't checked it out but I'm going to go with Goldmother as my pick. I just think the dance element that they incorporate as a live band is really interesting. And um, 
Yeah, I didn't want to go with the obvious one, Stone Roses. Uh, right. <laughs> that would be the easy one. Not the easy one, but I mean, I, I understand why that would be the obvious choice for everybody. So I'm, I decided to go uh, weirdo with it. I, I can tell you about how much I like Birdland, but I don't think that's going to benefit anyone, is it? Well, um, is, is that a so, uh, less obscure or a more obscure uh, Magic yeah, band? But I mean, I mean, if you look at the hair there, that's... Oh, yeah. I yeah. see. That's the... That is the, yeah. uh, the the haircut you're just even the guy in the back on the left is even more severe. Yeah, because yeah, he's got the little yeah. curls coming it's, down. It's the um, it's the bleach as well. Isn't is it Brian Jones who had a haircut like that? Yeah, it's very Brian Jones. Yeah, it's a mushroom head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very much like Toad from uh, the the Mario uh, universe. <laughs> People that don't actually know that that Toad from Mario from Mario Brothers was a huge influence on the Manchester uh, fashion scene. <laughs> I, I I only discovered from my, my son a, a few weeks ago that that's not actually his head; it's a hat, um, which I found shocking. I thought he was um, actually a mushroom. What? But it, it's just a hat. I had no idea. I didn't. Whoa! Know that. Yeah, this was also my reaction. Yeah. <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. You just floored us. We're going to have to take a minute to sit down and, and think about that. I've been playing that game for a long time. He, he's my go-to on Mario Kart, you know. And, oh. and I didn't know. And now you know. Yeah. It's, yeah. All, it's all been a lie. <laughs> I like to go think, with Bowser and Mario Kart, but that's all right. It's worth uh, mentioning like how commercial this whole scene has been. So there is now a master masterclass if people are familiar with masterclass it's like a i guess a learning e-learning service where mm-hmm. experts teach martin scorsese teaches you filmmaking right so there's a masterclass on madchester taught by saint vincent what <laughs> yep saint vincent here madchester music three characteristics of madchester music saint vincent vincent teaches creativity and songwriting and where, a, where is Saint vincent from I mean, not, not that you have to be from know, England to do it. Philadelphia or San Francisco right. or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then yeah. uh, there is a Manchester.com that sells like branded T-shirts and hoodies and things that have various symbols and visuals from the scene. So I just found that kind of amazing. I don't know if you you know search search the word grunge that you're going to come up with like grunge.com and it's going <laughs> to. You're going to be able to buy t-shirts that, uh, um, Annie Clark, who goes by the name St. Vincent was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma and grew up in Dallas. There you go. I mean, you don't have to be from a country in order to teach about it. I mean, sure. I, I, I imagine many people who teach Russian literature aren't actually Russian. True. That's true. You just have to. I guess have studied it at some point. Apparently, she went to, took a Madchester class in college. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's strange. Interesting, but strange. That's uh, I, I guess that's apropos for this scene that uh, a a Dallas born indie musician from the United States would be teaching uh, Madchester music. Okay, sure. Well. Anything we didn't touch on, Paul, that you, you think we should hit as far as this scene goes? Um, not 
particularly that that strikes me yeah i think it, it was uh I, I, wrote, I wrote down the names of a few bands that um I, I fitted into that and some of the names are just really impressive in and of themselves um i, I particularly wanted to share with you the name the uh, new fast automatic daffodils um who i'm not not sure if you're familiar with the world of uh, the new fads as they were commonly referred to because they were quite late to the scene and, and um deemed to be a bit cynical um and jumping on as a uh, the okay. new fad but yeah the new fast automatic daffodils is, is a great name for a song it, it seems a uh, random word generator um <laughs> related um but they they the main guy from the, the them uh went on to produce some some quite nice um not exceptional trip hop later on in the decade um but yeah, it's it's them and the the mock turtles and world of twist, um, were a couple of other ones as well. What about uh, flowered up or the farm? Yeah, the the farm were good. I I actually quite enjoyed the farm. I, I don't recall the the uh, flowered up, but that sounds like the name of several hundred different compilation CDs you might be able to buy. <laughs> I, I want to say the farm got a little bit of MTV love here. Around I think you're right. Same time, that song was very familiar, and that name is seems like I I've seen their video. Maybe uh, there was also the band The Real People, and uh, that was got mentioned in, in reading about this. And um, there's a connection to Oasis because. They were unsigned, and he met Tony Griffiths of The Real People when he was a roadie for Inspiral Carpets, and um, I guess he sent them the demo, uh, and they had some, and his brother Chris, who's also in the band, had um, some involvement with uh, the debut album, including backing vocals on Supersonic. So. It's interesting because although Oasis itself does not have a dance element, there is a definite connection in multiple ways to this whole scene, not just from being there, but also like musically. Right. That uh, yeah, it, I didn't realize. It influenced their look a bit too, right? I mean, they, they kind of dressed that way and had haircuts similar to that. Oh, yeah. If hey Paul, if you were to recommend a starting point for Inspiral Carpets, do you have a do you have an album? I can't think of the um I I just start start with their, their first album, which is which is a bit more dancey than uh where, where they moved on to. Um uh, <laughs> and and uh brought down the record label with them. Um but yeah, that they I believe one of their songs starts uh with uh the sound of a police car uh the phrase you're twisting my melon man call the cops um <laughs> yeah so it, it's you know proper lyrical genius level work from sean Ryder, <laughs> uh, and and his constant sidekick bez oh so you, uh, wait you're talking about happy mondays oh oh am i getting confused sorry that's my fault sorry that's yeah, right uh, yeah it it's it's 30 years ago and i'm, I'm doing it off the top of my head my... <laughs> it's all right we understand um all right well we've hit the hour mark and i think this is a good spot for us to 
say thank you, Paul, for joining us on this uh, little d- dive into Manchester. We got some good information and, and understanding like this is both a scene and a sound. It's not just yeah. one or the other. I don't think we've uh, talked about anything, either a genre or a city that's come close in, in the same way, have we? Not really. No. No, it, it, there's, it's much more like focused than, you know, you talk about like Boston or stuff, but there's a lot of diversity in Boston right. music. San Diego. And, uh, maybe the desert scene was the closest. Yeah. The Palm Desert was a sound and a sort of location, but that, that's, that, that was all the same. That's probably the closest. Yeah. In terms of being all things. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you do have your, the, the constant association of of grunge um of grunge.com fame um with with the city of seattle yeah sure although i think that lessened as the decade went by because other bands were coming out of that scene yeah. but i can see that from definitely from the like sort of mid 80s to when nirvana breaks it's definitely the sound of that scene well thank you for sending some of your sunday uh evening with us uh, you can. You're now off the clock, and you can have your celebratory uh, ale yeah. or, uh, or or adult beverage. <laughs> Kick back in your castle. There you go. Yes. Yes. Drop I'll, some I'll, lead. I'll, I'll get. I'll get some of the staff to to bring me a, a, a mead <laughs> and a leg of and a leg of chicken or or turkey. I I just go straight for a leg of beef. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, it takes a couple of staff to hold it at each end, but it's you can't you can't beat it from a from a catering experience. I mean, what is staff for but not to hold your meat? Right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, uh I want to thank everybody who uh contributed. We had some uh the votes and then the comments and uh we appreciate you all. And if you are suggest if you are interested in commenting or voting or contributing, you can join us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. It's where you go to um, become a member of our union, and you'll get to vote in polls for both albums each month, and uh, depending on what level you're at, roundtables, '80s episodes, new '80s episodes every other month. There'll be one sometime this month. You have to find out when. And then, of course, it's those uh, albums come to us from digmeoutpodcast.com. Go to our suggested album page, suggest an album. It goes into the pot, the hopper, the kiln, whatever you call it. And Jay molds it into a nine uh, album selection out of his kiln of, out of albums. We smelt. We smelt these albums. <laughs> Freshly smelted mm. every month. Nine albums, you vote on them at Patreon, and then we uh, talk about them. And of course, of course, the Box Newsletter every week goes out two new reviews of 80s and 90s relevant music that's just been released. So much good stuff has come out recently. You can sign up for the Box Newsletter at digmeoutpodcast.com. You can also get it if you are a Patreon member. And last but not least, if you like what you heard, Apple Podcasts is where you go to leave us a positive review uh that's it for jay i'm tim we're out i'll be back next week with another episode of dig me out Just in my head.